Well, I hate to tell you this, but you may have missed celebrating a very important day this past week. I'm not talking about Mother's Day. You still have a chance to get that right, and I encourage you to. <laughs> the day I'm thinking of fell on Thursday. Now, I'm not thinking of Cinco de Mayo, though that can be fun. I'm not thinking of the National Day of Prayer, which is important. I'm not thinking of Totally Chipotle Day, which is a real day. I'm thinking of Ascension Day, which fell this year on May 5th, exactly 40 days after Easter. Now, Ascension Day marks the return of Jesus to heaven after the resurrection. And along with his birth, his baptism, his death, and his resurrection... It's one of the great moments in Jesus' earthly ministry. So important that for thousands of years, whenever Christians have affirmed their faith, we have declared our faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, God's only Son who ascended into heaven. There's an argument to be made that if Jesus hadn't ascended, the rest of it wouldn't have mattered. And yet... Most of us miss it every year, including this preacher. Chances are Ascension Day means very little to most of us. Chances are we have rarely, if ever, uh, heard a sermon or a teaching on that subject. And that's strange because for the disciples, it changed everything. Ascension Day lifted them from sorrow to joy and gave them hope in the face of an uncertain future. And I think we would all agree, in these days of uncertainty for our nation, for the world, we could use a little hope as well. Ascension Day. As it turns out, Ascension Sunday, which is today, also marks a turning point in our year-long journey through the Bible as we have been rediscovering Jesus this year. We spent a few months back in the fall in the Old Testament finding traces of Jesus in all those thousands of years of Israel's history. We spent four months this winter in the Gospels, exploring the earthly ministry of Jesus. But beginning today, for the next couple of months, we're going to work our way through the rest of the New Testament, the book of Acts, the epistles, and getting all the way to the book of Revelation. And we're going to be asking the question, where is Jesus now and what is he doing? Where is Jesus now and what is he doing? And our theme text for this series comes out of the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. So it turns out, one of the things Jesus is doing now is sitting down, sort of. Theologians call it the heavenly session of Christ. It comes from the Latin word for sitting. But if you're imagining Jesus reclining in a barco lounger with a built-in cup holder, you have the wrong idea. We're going to discover today and in the weeks to come that Jesus is as present and active in the world today as he was during the days of his earthly ministry and will continue to be present and active right up until the end of history as we know it. And so we're calling this series Strong to the Finish. 
we'll be learning not only about how Jesus is finishing his ministry in this world, we'll be learning how we can be strong to the finish of our lives as well. We just finished up a series that we called Unstalled. So hopefully we are all on the move again in our spiritual journey. But it turns out the spiritual journey is more like a marathon than a sprint. It's more like a trek up a mountain than a walk in the park. So you need perseverance. And so as a part of our series, we are going to be hearing from some Grace Chapel folks who've been following Jesus for a long time and learning from them how Jesus has helped them be strong to the finish. So we'll finish our message with one of those stories this morning, but let's get to our, our text for this week, which is found in the book of Acts, chapter 1. I'll read the opening verses. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he gave them many convincing proofs he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Now, we're reminded here that the book of Acts is a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, both written by Luke. Tradition tells us he was a historian and a physician, as well as a Christ follower who traveled with the Apostle Paul. And it seems as though he has set out to put together a reliable, comprehensive account of the Christian movement, beginning with the birth of Jesus all the way through to the establishment of the worldwide church. And it took him two volumes to do it. So he begins his second volume by informing us that after Jesus' resurrection, he made a series of appearances to his disciples over a period of 40 days. Now, we know from the Gospels that during those 40 days, Jesus wasn't present with the disciples most of the time. But from time to time, he would appear to them in miraculous but ordinary circumstances, in an upper room beside the sea, walking along a road, and offer them proof that he was alive. See, he wanted his disciples to know that he was alive in the fullest sense of that word, physically, bodily, humanly alive. And on those occasions when he appeared to them, he taught his disciples about himself, about the kingdom of God, and gave them instructions as to what they were to be doing next. As we're going to find out, they have a hard time grasping exactly what's happening next, but Jesus gave them instructions anyway. But when those 40 days were up, he left, visibly, finally left, and was taken up into heaven. We'll talk more about that in a minute. What I want you to notice in these opening lines is a phrase in verse 2. All that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. That's a curious phrase. That's a curious way to describe the end of a person's life. Imagine coming to the end of a contemporary biography and reading, and that's what Martin Luther King Jr. began to do and teach until the day he died. But well, wouldn't the day he died have been the end of his doing and teaching? You see, Luke uses this curious phrase, began to do and teach, to help us understand that Jesus wasn't done doing and teaching when he left this world. In fact, he would continue doing and teaching right up through, and will continue it right up until the end of time. Now, the disciples had a hard time understanding that, and we can't blame them. So listen to what they say in verse 6. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, the disciples were still thinking of the kingdom in political terms. They're imagining a throne in Jerusalem with Jesus sitting on it, ruling over the nation of Israel. And P.S., they're also imagining thrones for them right alongside him as well. <laughs> so Jesus quickly shifts their focus from an earthly perspective to a heavenly perspective. He wants them to see that his kingdom is not just about one nation, not even the nation of Israel. It's about all the nations and all the peoples to the uttermost parts of the earth. And friends, can I just take an aside for a moment as we find ourselves in the midst of a very unpredictable election year and in very uncertain days nationally and globally to remind ourselves of some important truths here. To remind ourselves not to think of the kingdom of God in national or political terms. It's important that we not align the work of Jesus with any particular candidate or platform or party. It's a good thing to, to pay attention to the political process and know what's happening. It's a good thing to pray for our nation and for our leaders. It's a good thing when the time comes to cast our vote thoughtfully, prayerfully, and respectfully. But even as we do those things, we remember that our citizenship is in heaven. And that the seat of authority we are most concerned about is the one that's situated at the right hand of God. And the one nation that is central to God's purposes is the one Peter describes as the holy nation, the royal priesthood, the people belonging to God. And he's talking about the church, the worldwide community of faith. So as things unfold before us in the days to come as, and as carefully as we want to enter into it and thoughtfully, let's keep these perspectives in mind. So before we get too distracted by that and before my inbox begins to fill up with emails, <laughs> let's get back to our topic and our text, okay? Back to Acts chapter, nine, chapter 1, skipping down to verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. And notice how specific Luke gets about this ascension moment. He tells us Jesus was taken up before their very eyes. In other words, they saw him go. Now, why was that so important? Well, remember that for the past 40 days, Jesus was coming and going mysteriously. First, he wasn't there, and then suddenly, there he was. They didn't see him coming. They didn't see him going. He would just appear and disappear. They needed to know that those days of his coming and going were over that he would no longer be present with him in those days, visibly and bodily. They needed to know that things were going to be different now. I can still remember the day my father dropped me off for my freshman year at college. 
I was the oldest, so the first one to be leaving home. Uh, we made the thousand-mile drive together out to uh, Illinois, gave us time to talk and enjoy each other in the car. The night before he left, he bought me a nice steak dinner, offered me some words of advice and a prayer for the, uh, the days to come. But the next day, the time had come. And I remember standing beside my father's Oldsmobile outside that dormitory, giving him one last awkward hug through the window, as if we were both a little not quite ready to accept what was happening, and then watching that car pull out of the driveway and disappear around the corner. And at that moment, it hit me. Things are different now. I'm on my own. Mom and Dad are not here to come to the rescue anymore. I'm going to have to figure things out on my own. And I remember turning around and looking up at that big freshman dormitory and saying to myself, well, here we go. Here we go. And I think I needed to see him drive away for the reality of that to hit. And maybe for the disciples, it had to be that way as well. They needed to see him go. They needed to know that he wouldn't be showing up the next day or the next week or whenever they got themselves into a jam. They were on their own now, so to speak. The ministry was in their hands. You shall be my witnesses. He wasn't going to be with them in the same way anymore. Now, the curious thing about this is that they weren't sad to hear that. Remember how they reacted the first time they heard about this? The Last Supper, the final discourse, Jesus told them he was going away. They were sad and troubled and afraid. Lord, where are you going? Lord, we don't know the way. Lord, can we come with you? I mean, think about the last time you said goodbye to someone you loved, not knowing when you would see them again. Maybe dropping someone off at a university somewhere. Maybe a friend or family member moving all the way across the country. Some of you said goodbye to your homeland and to your family and your history when you emigrated to the United States. Standing beside a grave, saying goodbye to someone, knowing you won't see them again in this life. I mean, those moments are typically difficult and, and, and even sad. But the disciples aren't sad when Jesus leaves. In fact, if we go back to Luke's gospel, to the last couple lines of volume one, this is what we read. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Notice their response to the departure of Jesus. Worship and joy. Great joy. Now that's a strange reaction. I'm not sure how I would have felt if as my father pulled away, he rolled down the window, blasted the radio, and started grooving in his car. <laughs> now maybe he did that when he turned the corner. But I sure didn't want to say it. How do we explain the disciples' reaction? What lifted them from sadness to joy and gave them hope suddenly in the face of a very uncertain future? Well, the answer is simple and yet profound. They understood that because of the ascension, Jesus was going to be exactly where they needed him to be. Jesus was going to be exactly where they needed him to be. I'd like to take a minute or two to explain that to you. I'm going to offer you three reasons why the ascension gives us joy and hope. 
We'll spend most of our time on the first one because the second two we'll talk about in the weeks to come. But the first thing the disciples understood that day, the first thing we need to understand about the ascension is that Jesus, because he has ascended, Jesus is now in heaven at the right hand of God. In heaven at the right hand of God. Notice again Luke's description. He was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, when Luke mentions a cloud, he's not talking nimbus or cumulus. He's talking about the cloud of God's presence. The disciples, when they saw that cloud, would have immediately have thought of the cloud of, of God's presence that guided Israel through the wilderness, reminding him of his presence in the camp. Three of them, Peter, James, and John, would have thought of the cloud that enveloped them on the Mount of Transfiguration when they beheld Jesus and heard God's voice. They understood at this moment that, that, that Jesus was heading up into the presence of God. And that was important because up until this moment, they weren't sure where he was, frankly. They had no categories for where a person goes after they rise from the dead. What, what, was he in Sheol, the holding place of spirits where everyone else was waiting for the resurrection? Was he still on earth but just invisible, making appearances from time to time? They had no categories for this. But now they understood where Jesus was. He was in heaven in the very presence of God. And they saw it with their own eyes. And notice too, they saw him go bodily. Luke specifically mentions how they saw Jesus' hands extended toward them. A friend of mine is a seminary professor, and he said that whenever he sits on a council to examine a graduate or uh, on an ordination council to examine a pros prospective pastor, he likes to ask a question something like this. Is Jesus still human? Does Jesus still have a body? And he says, even after three or four years of seminary education and Bible study, most graduates squirm in their seats and hem and haw trying to answer that question. But the answer really is very clear. Yes, Jesus still has a body, and yes, he is still human. They saw him go into heaven bodily, physically, with his hands extended. Jesus now had a glorified body fit for eternity, but it was a body all the same. And yes, he was still man. He was the son of man, the quintessential man. And he was the son of God, fully God, in heaven. And the reason that's so important is because it reminds us that that's what we can look forward to as well if we put our faith in Christ. That we too will be raised to new life, not just spiritually but materially. That we will receive a glorified body fit for eternity Whatever the age to come looks like, we will not be disembodied spirits drifting through the cosmos. We will have bodies and beings by which we inhabit this new world, this new heaven and earth that God will create. Well, notice something else here about how the angels describe him. They say, this same Jesus has been taken into heaven. The same Jesus. The Jesus they had come to know and love. The Jesus who had walked with them and eaten with them and prayed for them and strengthened them, that same Jesus would be doing those very same things. Only now he would be doing them from a position of authority in heaven 
from the right hand of God. And this is something Jesus himself had predicted. If you remember the trial, as he stood before the high priest, Jesus said, I tell you that hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. See, the right hand was the seat of authority. The person sitting in that seat had authority to carry out the will of whoever was sitting on the throne. The closest comparison we might have is a, is a prime minister in a monarchy. The king is the head of state. The prime minister is the head of government. The one who actually carries out the will and vision of the king. The prime minister, the right hand. And that's the position that Jesus is now occupying in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, ruling over all things, carrying out the good purposes of God. As wonderful as it was for the disciples to have Jesus with them on earth, walking and talking with them, how much better for him to be in heaven doing those very same things, but now with all the authority and the scope of power of ruling over all the earth. Think of it this way. Let's say you are arrested and thrown into jail unjustly. You're falsely charged, but you're in jail nonetheless. Your attorney comes and visits you in jail, sits down with you in your cell, invites you to tell the whole sad story. And as you do, he explains to you that he thinks you have a pretty good chance of, of getting out again. Well, that, that's wonderful. It's nice to have someone sitting with you in your cell and listening to your story and offering words of encouragement. But where do you really need him to be? Out there, in the courtroom, pleading your case before the judge and getting something actually done so you can get out of jail again. In the same way, as helpful as it was for the disciples, as helpful as it might be for us, we think, to have Jesus here with us, how much better for him to be in a position where he can actually intercede for us and rule for us and work for us from heaven, ruling over all things, all people, all places. To put it another way, at that particular stage in my life, I didn't need my father to be with me in the dormitory. I needed him to be back home making money so we could keep those tuition payments coming. <laughs> That's power. Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God where he can truly do something for our lives, for the world around us. In the weeks to come, we'll talk more about what he's actually doing up there. And even though theologians call it the heavenly session of Christ, he's doing a lot more than sitting around up there. But understand that because Jesus ascended, he is exactly where we need him to be, the right hand of the Father. And that's good to know in these uncertain days. Because even though we sometimes find ourselves scratching our heads over what's happening in our nation or our world or even in our own lives, Jesus is not perplexed. He's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He's still working all things together to accomplish God's good purposes, and he will continue doing that until the very end of the age. So that's encouraging. Now, two other reasons briefly why the ascension gives us joy and hope. First of all, it means that he is now in heaven at the right hand of God, but secondly, it means that he is with us through his Holy Spirit. This is something Jesus had promised them. Remember in the upper room, I will send a counselor, I will send a comforter, he will be with you, he will teach you all things. It's something he reminded them right before he went up into heaven this time. We skipped over verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. 
For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it turns out that even though Jesus is present bodily in heaven at the right hand of God, he's present here spiritually through his Holy Spirit. I remember trying to teach this once to a group of children, six or seven years old at the time. I was trying to explain to them the omnipresence of Jesus. Jesus is always with you, I said, because Jesus is everywhere. Well, they began to ask some questions, as kids are likely to do. Is he on that chair? Is he on the swings? Is he in my mommy's car? I tried to bring it back around again. I said, well, no, he's with you because he's in your heart. <laughs> well, how did he get in there? I had nowhere to go. Now, the problem, of course, is that kids think concretely. But Jesus isn't present concretely. He's present spiritually in different kinds of ways, but very real ways, even if kids and grown-ups have a hard time understanding that sometimes. Even though my father left me physically standing there <clears throat> outside the dormitory, in the weeks and months and years to come, I was going to discover that he and my mother were with me in all kinds of ways they had not been with me before. The Sunday afternoon phone calls, the letters we exchanged back and forth, the cards, the occasional $20 bill in the mail, and most of all, the prayers that were offered on my behalf. At that point in life, I really didn't need them to be with me physically. I needed them to be with me spiritually. And in a similar but much greater way, Jesus is with us now by the power of his Holy Spirit, and we'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. A third reason <clears throat> the ascension of Jesus brings us joy and hope because it tells us that Jesus is not only in heaven at the right hand of God and with us through the Holy Spirit, but he's coming back to finish what he's begun. Amen to that. As he was disappearing into the sky, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So as wonderful as it is to know that Jesus is sitting on the throne of heaven working all things together for, for, for God's purposes and our good. As wonderful as it is to know that Jesus is with us through all the ups and downs of life. It's wonderful to know that someday he's going to bring it all together. He's going to come back and bring things to completion. Because it means that one day we and this world will be all that we were intended to be all that we want to be, all that we dream it would be, but now fall so far short of. It will not end in disaster. It will end in redemption. And that fills us with hope and with joy. And it means that our lives matter. It means that our relationships matter. Our work matters. Our ministry matters. Because every day we are joining Christ in the work he's doing in this world of extending his love and goodness and grace to all people so that all people might flourish, so the world might be filled with his glory. We get to do that every day. We're going to talk more about the second coming later on in the series. But enough now to remember. We don't want to miss the fact that the one thing we need to know about his second coming is that we're not supposed to be standing around staring into the sky trying to figure out when it's going to happen. The angels say, what are you doing? 
looking in the sky. Get out of here. There's things to do. There's a world to reach. And we don't, have much, we don't know how much time we have. And so we want to get out there and make the most of it. Well, I hope you're beginning to get a sense for why the ascension matters. Why it brings joy and hope. Because it teaches us that Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of God. He's with us by his Holy Spirit. And he's on his way back to finish what he's begun. In other words, because he ascended, Jesus is everywhere we need him to be. Because he ascended, Jesus is everywhere we need him to be. He's ruling from heaven. He's with us in every circumstance. And he's coming back one day to bring it all to completion. Now, that's a lot of theology for one sermon. So way to go. Good hanging in there. But as we finish up, we want to get a personal take on all this. What, is, what do these truths mean to us as we live out our lives, these sometimes long and winding journeys that we're on called life? So we'd like to share with you the first of our many strong to the finish stories. So let's turn our attention to the screen for a moment, and uh, then I'll come back and wrap things up. My name is Elsie Kitchen, and I've been a follower of Jesus for over 50 years. Jesus has been in my life, all of my life, but I have really sensed his closeness, his nearness, more in times of tragedy or deep loss. I grew up in a very loving, solid, secure Christian home. You know, the growing up years were such a wonderful time of happiness and success. Things in life just seemed to go on in all of those years in a happy mode, uh, always, always filled with joy. After being married for 13 years, uh, the first tragedy hit. My dearly loved 11-year-old son was killed in an accident. I was just struck with being heartbroken. I really didn't know what to do. I just couldn't even imagine what life would be like without David's presence. I fell to my knees asking Jesus to help me through this sorrow, this difficult time. In the days that followed when I was uh, struggling with my sorrow, God assured me of his presence, of his strength, of his loving care. Actually, during those times, I really did feel the presence of Jesus. And I can remember after David died, being in my kitchen, and I turned and I started to say, excuse me, I really felt the presence of Jesus. A few years later, my life took another unexpected turn. My husband told me that he no longer wanted the responsibility of a family. I was stunned. Uh, I, I was hopeless. And truthfully, I was, I was angry, too. I didn't know what I was going to do. I had been out of the job market for a number of years. I remember so clearly standing at my kitchen window 
and looking out with tears streaming down my face and seeing cows on a neighboring hill. And it struck me that God, my father, owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he will provide for me. Now I know this is hard to believe, but the very next Sunday following the church service, a man came to me and asked if I could possibly come work for him. God provided that offer of employment uh, to provide me with the income that I would need to support my children. All of these experiences with Christ have given me the, the assurance that he is always watching his family. Just this past summer, I faced the painful death through cancer of my daughter, Julie. And I knew, and I know now, that Jesus is with me. But it really was in each of those instances uh, that closeness of Jesus. It's almost like she needs me right now. I've got to be right there. I really had, have had that feeling in all those instances. I live each day with a thankful heart for God's constant care and for the joy, the true joy, that only Jesus can give. Have you met someone with as much joy and hope as Elsie has? How does she do that? After so many years, after so many hard and difficult things, she has discovered through all of her life that Jesus is everywhere she needs him to be. That in all the experiences of life, he has been ruling over all things and working them together, even the tragic and awful things, working them together for good purposes. She's discovered that he really is with her in personal and powerful ways through those moments. And she has no doubt that he will see her through to the finish and complete the good work that he has begun in her life. And that fills her with joy and hope. May it do the same for us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful again for the scriptures, whether we're coming to it for one of the very first times in our lives or we've been working with it for decades. We continue to find truths here that fire our imagination, that stretch our thinking, that speak to our deep longing and needs that have relevance to our everyday lives and the world in which we live. Truths that can indeed change everything for us. We thank you for the good work you have done, are doing, and will complete in Elsie's life for the joy of having her among us as she shows us the way. We pray, Lord, that each of us here might have eyes today to recognize where you are in heaven with us and coming again. And may that energize us as we head out into this world to live for you, to enjoy you, to share you until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>